the question that I was thinking about this week is, how do people view the church? How do I view the church? Now again, when I say the church, I'm not talking about the church building. Though it's excellent that we're having a building program. And I believe that's going to be a, a tool that can be used to build Christ's church. But how do people view the church? And again, normally people are thinking the church being um, the building, the local church. But I'm talking more about the universal church. You know, when, when you'd ask that of people, just general people, you might get responses like this, uncertainty. Lack of spiritual leadership. Some people see the church as a lacking spiritual leadership. By the way, loud local churches are lacking spiritual leadership. There's a pessimistic of the future. There's Some would say we're at a crossroads. It seems like we're always at a crossroads. Decisions to be made. Or some would say a crisis. The church is in a crisis. Uh, there are a lot of churches in a crisis as far as local churches. Some might even say it's in decline or failure. Then you hear words like market-driven, seeker-sensitive, emergent, emerging. You know, I always like that, emerging. Like we haven't emerged, we're emerging. It's in process. Like what was happening the last 2,000 years wasn't right. Sometimes you hear the idea of consumer. That's killed the church. A lot of local churches, consumers. Consumers being, you're the consumer and the church needs, the leadership needs to figure out what you want. Now, isn't that strange? It's not about us, it's about Him. See, in that sense, the church sometimes is in decline, sometimes is in failure, sometimes is directionless and maybe even hopeless. Because if we get our eyes on us as being the standard, then we're in real problems. And yet in Matthew 16... Jesus settles this issue right here in verse 13 and says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, he asked them two questions. First question was this, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? By the way, when he uses the idea of the Son of Man, again, humanity. And the answer, and again, some say John the Baptist. By this point, John the Baptist had been killed. And the idea was, well, maybe he is. Because he, he, he wasn't around John the Baptist much, other than the baptism. So maybe your son, John the Baptist, or some say Elijah. Well, that's a kickback from the last few verses of Malachi. You know, Elijah's going to come. Maybe you're Elijah. Or Jeremiah. That was more of a tradition. The Jews had a tradition that uh, oh, possibly this one is Jeremiah come back. Or one of the prophets. In other words, they didn't know. But that's what they're saying. They're saying that this was... Man, there's all kinds of people's thoughts out there. By the way, isn't that true today when it comes to Jesus Christ? Who is Christ? Oh, he's a good man. He's a good teacher. You know, uh, he seems to have some good things. Who do men say that the Son of Man... I, the Son of Man, am? But then he goes on. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's the bigger question. That's the more important question. Who do you say that I am? You're the one following me. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living. And actually in the Greek it says the God. And there's four definite articles there. I mean, he hits it right on the, on the head. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, with like an 
hearty yes. What does he say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. By the way, if you know that to be true of Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then know that you didn't, you didn't come upon that by yourself. That was, the, that was the, uh, the illumination of the Holy Spirit in your life, opening your heart that was once dead to the truth that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, is truly the one that died for your sins, and by receiving him, you could be forgiven and brought into his family. That, that's not by flesh and blood. That's because the Spirit of God worked in Peter's life. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he's worked in your life. Again, therefore his death for others, because he is the Son of the living God, had infinite value. See, people look at the death of Christ and say, well, he was a good example. He died a martyr. He died a sacrificial death, but he just died it for himself. But we realize through Scripture, because, it, because he is indeed the Son of the living God. In other words, he asked the first question, who, who do men say that the Son of Man is? But now he's saying, no, but Peter said, no, you're the son of the living God, which is pointing towards not only that he is Messiah, but also he is deity. And because God died for us on a cross, his, his death had infinite value and could forgive completely our sins. And we have no longer any, um, we don't have to suffer any wrath of, of God on, our, uh, on us because of our sins, because it's all been taken care of through Christ. So that was a really good answer. Wouldn't you, don't you wish you always had that good of an answer when, when the topic of Jesus Christ came up? Sometimes we mealy mouth around. and then Peter said it exactly right. So if that's true, that he is the, as Scripture says, the author and perfecter of our faith, if he indeed is the, the great shepherd, if he indeed is the one who is the guardian of our souls, then we need to go to Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in this passage in, in a moment. Uh, to get instruction as to the church. So, example, to whom do we look when the church is in despair? Christ or man? I think sometimes we look to men. Oh, what do you know? We go to a different church. I mean, pastors do, you know, church growth seminar. Who do we should go to? It should be Christ. Who, do, who knows more about the current needs of this church, Christ or man? Who can provide better for this church, Alfred Allman Bible Church, Christ or man? From whom did the original idea of the church come? We're going to see that in a moment. It's Christ. In whom rests the church's future hope? Jesus Christ. Well, that's an important one. I don't want to hope in man. I want to hope in Him. Who built the church up until now? <laughs> Jesus Christ. By the way, that's a very encouraging thought. This church had been going on. I don't mean the local church. I'm talking about the church universal. It's been going on way before I ever came on the scene, born in 1961. And it will continue on if the Lord doesn't come back after John Prince dies, after you die. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great thought? That the church doesn't, isn't determined by me. I'm, not, I'm just a little piece. You're just a little piece. The church marches on, universal. Whom do you, we trust for the future direction of the church? Who owns it? Who sustains it? For whose glory do we, we do what we do and the church exists for? It's for the head. It's for Christ. Now, you know, this is so obvious, right? I mean, yeah, you know, 
Pastor, come on. I mean, this is obvious. You know, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it isn't. We get our, you know, I even think like this, uh, you know, the political system in America, the political system in New York State, um, finances, da, da, da. You know what? Nothing stops the church of God. Because behind the church of God is Jesus Christ. Actually, in front of the church of God is Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say it this way. The political system in America has nothing to do with the church's advancement. Nothing. Sometimes we think that the political system, we've got to make it, it has nothing. Zero. Nothing. Whatever the, the world does has no connection with the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the church. In fact, sometimes when there isn't persecution, it actually deters our thinking into other areas that shouldn't be. We get comfortable and we forget our main purpose of being here is the proclamation of the gospel. So what I'd like to do with the rest of the time, which is very short, is we're just going to break down verse 17 and 18 and just look at a few things that actually up to 19 that, the, that Jesus Christ says about his church. And again, it's he's the head, he's the shepherd, he's the great shepherd, he's the good shepherd, he's the overseer of our souls, he's the guardian. This is what he says. First of all, he promised an enduring foundation. He promised an enduring foundation. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this. So whatever else he's going to be talking about, flesh and blood has not revealed this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, different word, different form of the same word, I will build my church. So the first thing he talks about is upon this rock, I'm going to build this church. Now again, when you're built on a rock, that, that same word is used in uh, Matthew 7 where it says the wise man built his house on the Petra, rock. Whatever that rock is, that's going to be what the church's foundation is on and nothing can, can move when, when you're built on an immovable foundation because that's what the word means. By the way, the word Peter means rock, can be means pebble, but usually just means a rock, but it does mean a movable rock. When he says the word Petra, Petra, it means an immovable, like bedrock. It's like where you, uh, you know, build a house and you can find bedrock and pour off of that, you know, build off of that. It's immovable. He says, so the first thing is there's this enduring foundation. By the way, there's a few... um, Trans, or, uh, interpretations, and again, Roman Catholicism would say this, that's Peter. What Jesus is saying is, you're going to be, I'm going to hand the baton as it were to you, Peter, and then, you know, and he, you're going to be the authority. Uh, that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. It's actually one of two things. It's either he's referring to himself. By the way, Jesus Christ is referred to, I mean, God is referred to as a rock, like in Psalms 18. It says, the Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. You know, God is referred to as a rock. And over and over again in Scripture, I think in Psalms alone, God is referred to as a rock 19 times. So, I mean, it's, it's heavy in Scripture that God is the rock. And by the way, He is the rock. But here in this context, I think it's, it's not just that God is the rock, but it's the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Like Jesus Christ is referred to as that rock was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10.4. He's referring to how um, 
the rock followed, you know, the Israelites in the, in the desert. And that rock was Christ. In other words, even Christ was there guiding, protecting the people of Israel. But I think here, I think what he's referring to is really the testimony of what Simon Peter had just said in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the the living, the God. Okay, that's the, that's the rock that, that Jesus Christ is referring to. In other words, the enduring foundation is not just that it's on Jesus Christ, which he is the, uh, the cornerstone, chief cornerstone, but the, the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, that indeed he is the Messiah, because again, you are the Christ, and you are deity, the Son of the living God. So the fact of the testimony, in other words, he turns to Peter and says, you know, you're exactly right. And you didn't get it from flesh and blood. It was God that gave it to you. And Peter, upon that rock, is going to be built the church. What rock? You, Peter? No. Not even Christ himself in the sense of just that. It's the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is deity. That's what the church is going to be built on. It's who Christ is. Again, the faith that was expressed by Peter was the rock upon which he would be, or which would be built the church. I didn't say that exactly right, but it's the it's the faith in who Jesus Christ is. That's the the rock that's gonna that hold the church throughout eternity, right? Because that's the testimony of who Jesus Christ really is. In fact, Peter said it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. What do you mean laid the foundation? Well, through the preaching of who Jesus Christ was. That's the testimony of Matthew 16, again, 16 and 17. That's the bedrock testimony. And then he says this in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. So it's, it, it's Jesus Christ and who he is, is the rock. And therefore, if that's the rock, that's an enduring foundation. I, I just find that so encouraging. Yeah, as this church, this local, little local church goes forward, we are part of the universal church if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ that is marching forward. And sometimes it looks really bleak to a local church. But when it comes to the universal church, all true believers, the church and the program and the kingdom is marching forward. How about the second thing he says? So, we've established the rock. I will build my church. That's actually five different words and we're going to look at each one. First of all, he promised personal involvement. I... I will build my church. I found it interesting that he has not left us alone, right? In Colossians 1, it says Christ is in us. Colossians 1.27. Matthew 28.20 says that Christ is with us. And in Revelation, remember when he's walking among the, the lampstands, Christ is amongst us. Christ is here. By the way, that's why it's so important as we sing uh, songs to the Lord, understand He's here. I, I was thinking to myself, were the words we sang true in our hearts? Everything we lost, we gained in Him. Our hearts are full of Him. That you are worth it all, and I will follow you no matter what the cost. Boy, those are easy to say, but is that hopefully true in your own life? Because He's here. He is here. So, I will build my church. Now again, thankfully he uses us. 
We are partnering with Jesus Christ to build his church. Corinthians 3, verse 6, it says, I planted, Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the increase. So, but I am partnering. I am working alongside in one sense. I mean, again, anything that happens good in my life, your life, it's really because the Spirit of God is working in us. But we are partnering with him. We have to see that. Sometimes I, I think we get a fatalistic attitude. The fatalism would be like, well, if God wants it, it'll be accomplished. Well, yeah, that's true in the sovereign sense. But God wants to use you, and sometimes we miss the opportunity. We, we don't become good stewards because we allow our time and energy and money and finances and gifts and abilities and talents to just kind of be just uh, wasted away. We waste our opportunities. And yet God calls us to a high calling, uh, not only to be part of his family, but to, again, build the church. So again, we want to be like uh, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but again, I understand God gave the increase, but I did plant. (laughs) I did my part. That's a very comforting thought. Again, that I am just a little part of the big program that... It was going on before I came on the scene, and it'll continue after I die, but I was still allowed to be a little part. Isn't that really neat that I'm allowed and you are allowed to be a little part? But again, you don't waste the opportunity. So I will. That's an absolute guarantee. I will. That's certainty there. Build my church. And this is no idle dream. You know what might be but the church will be triumphant, even though at times it looks bleak. I was going to show you a video, but uh, because of time we won't. But, you know, there's all kinds of information out there about all the persecution around the world. And, you know, when you come across persecution or hard times, or as the Schiffers were talking about, poverty and the immoralness of the culture and all the problems, and, and you know, you can almost get frustrated. But on the other hand, you have the promise, I will build my church. <laughs> and actually, those, rather than being looked upon as being roadblocks, are just opportunities. Because people are hurting, and we can help meet that need. In fact, I believe God puts us through hard times to prove that. I think sometime, maybe the church in America will go through more difficult... I know it will, right? But you know what? It will be a purifying effect. You'll you'll have the opportunity to determine, am I following Jesus Christ because of comfort or because he is my master? That's what, you know, you have a hard situation in your family. Are you going to follow him and do the right thing because he is your Lord or because, no, no, I'm not going to because it's starting to get a little difficult. See, I will, will, I, I will do it. He wants to present to himself a glorious church, Ephesians 5.27 says. He, he's going to work. So even though the church at times, the local church and the, you know, the, the church around uh, the world, America, may become liberal and apathetic and apostate, and the church itself is being persecuted from without, the church keeps moving on. That's why I love reading stories about China and uh, Vietnam Stories in Nigeria, you know, where the church has got a heavy, is amongst a heavy influence of Muslim or communist, and yet that church just continues to move forward. Because it can, Jesus Christ said it this way, I will build my church. 
Okay, it's going to happen. Look at the next one. He promised powerful advancement. I will, I will what? What's the word? Build. Build. It's used of a house. It's used of a, you know, to found something, to establish something. He's the one that established it. It's interesting. Sometimes the church goes through great growth. You see that in the book of Acts. that 3,000 were added in one day. By the way, that makes sense because you had Jesus Christ preaching for three years. <laughs> and there was this bulge in Pentecost and, you know, Jews were getting saved out of Jerusalem and so many others that had come. But again, sometimes it doesn't go quite like that. But it is interesting, by the end of the New Testament, across the entire face of the Roman Empire, there were churches that were, local churches that were being established. Whether you go to Rome or Corinth, or Thessalonica, Philippi, Philippi, Colossae, Antioch, Jerusalem, and what? It just keeps continuing today. Again, groups of people determining, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and yes, I need each other. We need each other, the one another, and that's where you get a local group. So you have universal church, you have the local, but it keeps moving forward. Jesus Christ said that in Luke 24. He says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. That's what Luke writes. To all the nations. So again, we just keep moving forward. That's what Acts 1, 8 talks about, that you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. What? Both in Jerusalem? What? In Judea? What? In Samaria? And uttermost part. And it just grew. By the way, that's what it should do is grow. Where, where you are, neighbors, you know, county, state, United States. And that, should, that's, that is how it should be in your own personal life. I want to challenge you. You know, I think sometimes we get saved and we get excited and here's the truth and you need to hear it and you need to hear it. And then you get, you know, either um, squelched because, you know, don't be too fanatical. Or you've told the person five times and they haven't heard it. So like, well, I'm not going to, you know, do that again. And we lose the passion of the message. They're still going to hell. Well, they might get upset with me. Well, they may not think good of me. Well, they might mock me. Wait, wait, wait. Is hell real? Is hell so bad that in one 30 seconds, it's, I mean, that's eternity of pain and suffering, but they're going to be there for eternity, but, but it's the ultimate of ultimate suffering? And yet, well, they might get upset with me. You know what? Our eyes become like with cataracts. Don't we? Sometimes we, and we don't see real clearly that we are, as believers, we are saved and those people will end up under the wrath of God in hell. And we somehow think, well, but I want them to like me. They will curse your name in, 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 in hell because you never told them, won't they? I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see that necessarily completely in Scripture. But what do sinful people do? <laughs> The point is, is this. We need to share with them. And whatever they say, and again, we have a tendency to, oh, I want them to like me. That is so from Satan. It's not about liking. This is a message that is true. They need Jesus Christ. And so the fourth word in that is, I will build my church. John 6 says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's and I believe in election. I do believe in election. But you know what I find? It's, it's like, um, it's like uh, Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you can show me a big E on the guy's chest, and those are the elect, then I will only uh, speak the truth to them. 
But if you cannot show me that they are identified like that, then whosoever believeth will inherit eternal life, right? See, we don't know who is elect. I do believe this, that a person comes to Jesus Christ, it's because the Spirit of God has opened their eyes. So again, we have to pray that the Spirit of God will open their eyes. But it's my church, he says. I will build my church. This is personal ownership or personal intimacy, if you're taking notes. Well, it's personal because he purchased us with his own blood. Romans 6.16 says, All the churches of Christ greet you. Of Christ. We are of, of Christ. We are his. We are his own personal possession. As individuals... He is our owner. He is the one who has purchased us. That's why 1 Corinthians says, You are not your own. You, are, you were bought at a price. We, f- we forget that. We, no, we have been purchased. Man, where would I be as a 52-year-old without Jesus Christ? Well, I, no, there would, I would not have the blessings on this earth. But wait a second. From an eternal standpoint, where would I be? I would be on my way to hell. And I may have made money and I may not because I wouldn't be in the ministry. But the point is, I would be on my way to hell. A few more years, a few more breaths, I'm on my way to hell. But no, Jesus Christ has rescued me. He has rescued you. You're His. One of the biggest things I always remember about Pastor Kenyon, that was 20-some years ago. He always would pray this, you know, this is not my church, this is your church, Lord. That always impressed me, you know. This is not my church, this is not Lee's church. And don't ever put a plaque up here, you know. Sometimes you go into churches and, oh, that was John Prince, pastor from so-and-so. Don't ever do that. Not that you ever thought of it, but... (laughs) (laughs) Remember a few good lessons, forget the rest. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because everything's recorded up there. (laughs) You're going to forget, Right? Just do your little piece, right? Because he will remember. He will remember and he will reward. So again, personal ownership. This is the Lord's church. And then finally, I will build my church. See, that points to this, that his promise was about people, not about buildings. It's good to have a nice building. But again, we can't get our minds on the building. It's about people. It's interesting that this word church is first used here. This is the first time you see the word church. It's, it appears like 114 times in the New Testament, most of the time to local churches, like, you know, the church at Philippi, things like that. But it's talking about people. People are the priority. People are the focus. But it also means this. This is, this is not just about priority, but it means this, that we as people should be interconnecting with each other. See, we, because people are relational. And sometimes when it comes to the church, you know, we come in, we leave, we come in, we leave, we give the message, we hear the gospel, we hear the truth, we sing praises to God. But when it says church, it's saying a gathered, the gathered ones, or literally it means the called out ones. But it's a, an assembly. It's, we're called out and we need to interconnect with each other. We're going to be looking at uh, fellowship in the next couple weeks. That's huge. You know, that we are truly having fellowship. Because sometimes this is part of the flesh. We get independent. I don't need the people. Just give me the, let me sing to you, Lord. You're going to be happy with that. And let me hear a message and I'll try to change and grow. But I'm not going to interconnect with, eh, they're just too, you know, it's too hard. 
Well, it is hard, isn't it? None of you are perfect. It's frustrating. No. (laughs) That's why it says, don't, Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Don't forsake that. I looked up the word forsaken. It means to abandon. It's when he said, um, my God, my God, why have you you forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus on the cross. Or when it says that more particular, Demas has forsaken me. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me. It's a very intense term. But here, the book of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake that. Make it a priority to be here. Not so that, you know, you get a little check mark. We're not going to check you off like that. Although we do take attendance. Why? Because we don't want you to be gone for like six, seven months and and, and nobody really connected. And you say, well, they should be connected. Well, sometimes people are elusive. See, if you see somebody, it's, it's for our benefit as shepherds. We, we want to take care of you. Sometimes sheep are hard to take care of. They don't want to be, they don't want to, they don't want you to know that they're missing. But then they're frustrated when you tell them that we didn't know that you were missing, you know? No, no, don't, don't, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I like what Martin Luther used to say. Listening to God's word and singing to God alone is good. That's what he would say. You know, listening and worshiping and teaching, you know, hearing teaching is good. But listening and singing together is better. Oh, the one is good, but doing it together in the fellowship is better. Quote, At home, says Martin Luther, in my house there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks way through. I love that. It just breaks right through. See, that's why TV church won't do. Yeah, TV church is not enough. Oh, it's such a great message. Yeah, but you don't get to interact with, your, with other believers. That's why home group is so important. That's why small groups are so important. Because here you still, you know, you can interact in fellowship, and we should. But man, when you get into a small group, who was telling me just recently, have you ever heard, have you ever seen how good Donna Ryan is at asking questions? Because Donna gets right up in your face. <laughs> Out of love. <laughs> because she wants to make sure that everything is really going well in your life if you say, yeah, everything is going well. Ah, that happens in small group, right? Uh, that ha- and by the way, we're going to be promoting a lot of different small groups. Men's groups, women's groups, uh, neighborhood home groups, small groups. Get connected. We need each other because when Jesus said, I will build my church, he's not talking about a building, he's talking about people. And people need people. People need people. By the way, it's interesting, Hebrews 10.24, the verse just before it tells you, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, it says this, let us consider one another. Let us consider, in other words, really know each other. I should be able to know Ed well enough to be able to do this. I should know Billy well enough to do this. And, you know, we all have our sphere of influence. But it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, the word stir up can either be the negative, can be irritation. Have you ever irritated somebody to try to get them to do love and good deeds? Or the opposite is to incite. But the idea is this. I'm going to use Lee Ryan because he's a good friend. You're poking the person. See, when we get together, there should be a poking effect. 
We should be inciting them to love and good deeds. We should be prodding them along, prodding them along. You prod me, go ahead, prod me. Now, sometimes we look at it as like the negative, like an irritation. Well, they just stopped calling me. I wish they'd stop writing me the letter. I wish they'd stop, you know, saying those specific words that really hit my heart. Just let me be comfortable in my sin. Now we get together because, you know, the questions are asked and we, we prod each other along and there's a purpose. It's not, just to, it's not just about the message, it's about each other. In fact, this should, be, this should go through our minds. Oh, I don't want to show up at church today. Well, for me, you might say, well, you're not going to get paid. No, it should be like this. You know what? I want to be at church. I want to be with the other believers. Why? Because I can encourage them. True fellowship can happen. I can irritate them towards love and good deeds, or I can incite them, depending on how they take it. But the point is, I'm gonna, I want my speech, my actions, my fellowship with you to be encouragement for you to walk with Jesus Christ. And the same should be for me. We should leave here. I, I always feel like this with men's prayer. I, uh, men's prayer. 6.30, you know, I have to get up at 6.30. I go from Alfred to Hornell. Oh, it's hard. In fact, last, yesterday I was like, Maybe I should just call Dale and tell him I'm not coming. He can deal with it, you know. <laughs> I get there, and this is how it happens every week. No, not every week do I say I don't want to go. But that's, about, <laughs> that's about half the time. Hey, I get up early every morning. People say, well, you must sleep. You know, that's the only day you get up early. No, no, I get up early every morning. So I don't ever sleep in. You know, sleeping into me is maybe seven, I guess. Uh, but the point is, is maybe that's really early or late for you. I don't know. But anyways, point is, is this. Go to men's prayer. Be with eight or ten guys, twelve guys. I walk out there. Man, Lord, I want to serve you. I, that, and I'm the leader. So I'm not, you know, I'm supposed to be like encouraging them. But every time, man, I want to, I want to, I want to serve the Lord. I, I want, it's just like joy in my heart. Why? Small group. Fellowship has happened, iron sharpened iron, and sometimes they've incited me to love and good deeds, right? There'll be a little, little advertisement for you to be at men's, men's prayer group if you're a man. By the way, we accept teens as well. Okay, let's look at another one. Two more and then we're done. He promised something else. G, absolute invincibility. And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. What do you mean the gates? By the way, people have thought of gates as an offensive weapons. Gates were never used as offensive, right? You put gates, you know, the city walls, and then you'd have gates. What were the gates for? At night, the people would come in, and the gates were closed. What would it do? It would protect the inhabitants of the city from those who would want to kill them. Now, what is he talking about here then? What is Jesus Christ talking about? And the gates of hell or gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Well, Gates refers to authority and power. And what he's getting at this is, is saying this, that the testimony that Peter, you just said in verse 16, 17, that I am the true Messiah, I am the true Christ, I am the son of the living God, that message cannot be stopped by Satan. And whatever he tries to put up, like 2 Corinthians 10 talks about the strongholds, that those will be destroyed, Peter. Understand this, that the message of the gospel is stronger than Satan, is stronger than sin, and it is stronger than death itself. Because when you tell someone the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are delivered from death and hell into the kingdom of God. They have been brought to life. The mortal enemy of man itself is death, 
And yet, what does Corinthians say about death? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. See, sometimes we look at that in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's almost like this, like the church is like this. And we're just holding back Satan. And, you know, they're just... Gates were for defensive. What he's saying is this. We're the running back with the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to roll the gates of hell over. Because they cannot withstand the message of the gospel. See, when when you see people come from death to life, from darkness to light, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got it. But not only that, have you ever seen that in a believer's life? They're chained to a sin. The truth of the gospel releases them, and all of a sudden they're free. Oh, yeah, that happens too. So it's not just unbelievers, it's believers as well. So again, absolute invincibility. The the message of the gospel. That's why Romans 6 says, death no longer has dominion over him. Because we're in Christ. Death has no grip on Jesus Christ, and as we are in Christ, we are... We are invincible as well in the sense of that death has no hold on us. Absent from the body, what? Go to purgatory. No. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Because death has no grip on us. No grip. And then finally, he promised privileged authority. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys was a sign, again, another sign of authority. A trusted steward kept the keys to his master's possession. So what is he getting at here? This sounds kind of odd. It means this. Peter used the keys by opening the door of the gospel to the Jews by his preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. What? On the day of what? Acts 2. Pentecost. Peter proclaimed Jesus Christ, and as it were, the key was opened to their heart. The Spirit of God gave them insight. They received Christ and were saved, the Jews of Acts 2. But then Peter also, by opening the door of the gospel to the Gentiles, by his preaching in the house of Cornelius, Acts 10 did the same thing. So what do you mean you have the keys? In other words, we have the key. What do you mean we have the key? We have the key in this sense. We have the truth. And as you present the truth to your father or your mother or your grandparents, or your children, or your family, or your friends, your neighbor, your co-worker. And the key is this, that you have the truth of the gospel and you're presenting it to them and the Spirit of God opens their heart and they receive. What have you just done? You have the power, in that sense, to give them, to show them the path. I mean, you don't have the power to give life. That, that's what Christ does. But the point is, is that you have the key. That is the key, the, the message of who Jesus Christ is. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And as you do that, you open up the gate, as it were, and you release the prisoners who Satan has tried to bind and blind, as Corinthians 4 says. But we have the key. We have the key. We have the message. We have the truth. But sometimes we keep it like this. I should have brought my keys and we put it in our pocket. And, um, you know, They might get upset if I tell them. And yet they're on their way to a Christless eternity. That's why Jesus said in Acts, or Matthew 28, 20, one of the last things he said in the Gospels, he said, all authority has been given to me. All authority, all power, all 
has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he goes to his disciples and says what? Go therefore and what? Make disciples. See, authority has been given to me. You've got the key. I'm giving you the authority to, to preach the gospel to every creature. No one is allowed to say it doesn't apply to me because Jesus already said I have all authority. And now I've given you my, the marching orders. Go therefore into all the world and tell them about me. And that's why over in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that very familiar passage, but you shall receive power. This is Christ speaking. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See what he did? He said, listen, all authority has been given to me. That's Matthew 28. The next thing we hear about Jesus is in Acts 1, and he's telling the disciples, all power is going to be given to you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I shouldn't say all. You're going to receive power when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And you're going to use that power for a specific reason. Oh, I'm going to use that power to be happy. No, no. You're going to use that power to be a witness. In fact, that word witness in the Greek meant one who dies for his faith. Because it was a common price to pay for the faith. That's what witness really meant. When he said, you're going to be my witnesses, and I'm going to give you power, it means you're going to be able to even go to the point of death for me. Because often when a person witnessed for Jesus Christ, that was the end result, that they would die. They would die for him. So again, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I've given you the keys The question is, have you kept the keys in your pocket? Are you really asking God, Lord, open up opportunity. Let me speak for you. I'm going to close with a devotional, actually. This is from A.W. Tozer, but it was so insightful that it really applied today. I want to end with this. Corinthians uh, verse, uh, I think it's chapter 5, says this. We are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we're out there for him, ambassadors. And Tozer writes this. In fact, the verse says this, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That means get saved, receive Christ. And Tozer writes, quote, The fall of man has created a perpetual crisis. It will last until sin has been put down and Christ reigns over the redeemed and the restored world. Until that time, the earth remains a disaster area. (laughs) We're in a disaster area. And the inhabitants live in a state of extraordinary emergency. It's like 911, New York City. Everyone's rushing to help because that was an extraordinary emergency as well. To me, it has always been difficult to understand, Tozer writes, those evangelical Christians who insist upon living in the crises as if no crises existed. They say they serve the Lord, but they divide their days so that as to leave plenty of time to play and to loaf and to enjoy the pleasures of the world as well. They are at ease while the world burns. I wonder whether such Christians actually believe in the fall of man. End quote. And then he writes this as a prayer. I'm too often at ease, Lord, and consumed with my self-interest. Lord, open my eyes to see the tragedy of friends and acquaintances on their way to a Christless eternity. And do it for Jesus Christ's sake. Yeah, we are in a disaster zone. 
This is a crisis on this earth. And those who never, never receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will spend eternity under the wrath of God forever in torment. And so we have the message. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And when the gates of hell try to prevent you from sharing the message, you're more powerful with the message that you have than the gates of hell itself. I've given you the key, but don't put it in your pocket. Share it. And my challenge to you this week would be this. Who does God want you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with? And maybe it has, it's been there and you've been saying no because he might get upset with me. I would encourage you to repent of that. Lord, this is the message you've given to me to share to him or to her or to whoever. Maybe it's a person you've never even thought of. Ask God to put people in your life, in your way, that, in your way, that you hadn't even thought of up to this point. But again, are we, really about, are we excited about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? I trust you are. Sometimes when you get older in the Lord, well, you know, I went through a phase where I was really evangelistic, but now I just want to enjoy life. That's not what it's all about. We're in a crisis zone. People need salvation. And we're the ones that God has said, you're my ambassador. We need to get the message out. Amen? We need to get the message out. Let's stand.